Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey, everybody. Uh, we've got a great one today, you know, for a change. Paul Krugman is my guest, the New York Times columnist, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist. Uh, I won I won a few Emmys. Uh, he's also a best-selling author, and his latest is uh, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future, and I've been reading that, and it's terrific. Also, uh, this is exciting news. Arguing with Zombies has been sold to the Sci-Fi Channel. I understand the makeup is fabulous. It's not real zombies, obviously. But uh, the show is three zombies. It's a talk show uh, format, political talk show, and they, they argue uh, with Paul. So uh, maybe he'll, he'll tell us a little bit about that. You know, I was uh, reading today about... Uh, the coronavirus around the world, and there's a lot of countries that have done it better than us, but there are a lot of countries that haven't. This pandemic is a global crisis, and President Trump, he punted and and went to the governors, but th- this is usually where the United States has come in. We, we, we've been the indispensable nation in the world, and we have completely lost that under Donald Trump. Uh, we led in the Ebola crisis. We are the CDC identified it before anybody else. We were leaders there. We used to be the indispensable nation in the world, but under Donald Trump, uh, we have completely retreated in a terrible way. <laughs> I mean, he he screwed up here, screwed up in our country. There was a New York Times article uh, recently that said that if, if Trump or the administration had uh, even a week sooner made this a priority, that would have been 35,000 fewer deaths in the United States. He's been a failure on this. We're going to talk to uh, Paul Krugman about the economic consequences of that. Oh, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already subscribed. If you do so, you'll be alerted when we have a new one right away. And uh, you'll get access, of course, to all the previous uh, 53 now episodes that we have. We're, We're now officially in season two. And uh, so I hope you do. I hope, I hope you do that. Well, very excited about uh, Paul Krugman. Uh, we're going to be talking about the economic consequences of uh, the pandemic and also uh, where we should be going from here. So uh, it's a good one for a change. Paul, I haven't seen you in a while, so thank you. Thank you for doing this. Sure. Great to be talking to you. Hey, breaks up the, the monotony of quarantine, right? 
Well, that's thank you for the high high praise. Uh, sorry about that. But, yeah. No, no, that's okay. Uh, so you are a professor emeritus at uh, the Woodrow Wilson School at, at Princeton, and you taught before at Stanford, right, and uh, Yale and MIT, of course, where you got your doctorate. And uh, basically, what I'm saying is, you're no Larry Kudlow. Uh, no, and I'm now, by the way, my current uh, home base, which is City University of New York Graduate Center, would be upset if I didn't say that. I'm, I'm now teaching there. Okay, we may we may cut that out. But... Okay. <laughs> no, we won't. Okay, so uh, here's what Larry Kudlow <laughs> said on February 25th. The U.S. had contained the virus, and the economy is holding up nicely. I always am interested to see what Larry Kudlow has to say, because uh, while some of us are sometimes wrong. All of us are sometimes wrong. Uh, Kudlow is always wrong. So if he says something's going to happen, you know it won't. The line about him once somewhere was he turns flamboyant wrongness into a form of performance art. But it's amazing. I mean, that, but that was the, the mindset in, in the White House up until uh, some days into March. They didn't want to hear about it. They didn't want anybody else to hear about it. And, and here we are, uh, you know, 90,000 deaths later and, and 20 million jobs lost. Yeah. They kind of uh, blew it, and we'll get into Trump in a minute. I want to talk about zombies Yeah, and have you define them. I've uh, been reading your book, and uh, basically you're saying it's Republicans who are not operating in good faith. Would that be correct? Well, that's true, but, I mean, a zombie idea is an idea that should be dead. Uh, it's been killed by evidence repeatedly but just keeps on shambling along, e eating people's brains. Uh, most of the important zombie ideas in American life and American politics are coming from the right. Overwhelmingly, they're coming from the right. In fact, most of our debates, you know, they're not good faith debates between people who uh, have looked at the evidence and reached different conclusions. They are debates between people who have looked at the evidence and people who are peddling zombie ideas. And that's uh, you know, tax cuts pay for themselves. Uh, uh, unemployment insurance makes people lazy, uh, all of these things, uh, which are playing a pretty big role, even in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, I want to talk about what we're doing and what we should be doing. Uh, my, you know, I was in the uh, Senate for a while, and my experience uh, with my Republican colleagues, you remember uh, during Simpson-Bowles, like the push for Simpson-Bowles? Yeah. I went to a bipartisan meeting on budgets and, and, and the economy, and we were still in the Great Recession, and they were talking about trimming or cutting Social Security and tightening the belt because deficits meant so much, of course, which is one of their zombie uh, ideas. And at a certain point, and I shouldn't have done this, I just kind of exploded and said, you guys don't care about deficits. You didn't care about deficits during W. And what you want is the economy not to recover so that Obama will lose re-election. And uh, that was the last time I went to that bipartisan meeting. That was very clear. As soon as uh, there was a Republican in the White House again, they suddenly lost all interest in deficits. The deficit exploded even before the current crisis. And not a peep from all of those deficit hawks that were complaining so much. I mean, what was interesting there was that deficit hawkery wasn't just coming from Republicans. It was coming from 
centrists and oddly the centrists also got quiet once the republicans started running deficits which tells you that a lot of centrists aren't actually bipartisan and centrists they're bipartisan in favor of one party there was never any reason to take any of that hullabaloo about oh these these de deadly deficits and we must cut social programs seriously uh, but it took over you know it, it dominated political discourse for uh, for years I remember we sequestered stuff. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous what we were doing, and it was true. They just didn't want Obama to succeed. And, of course, when they passed this tax cut in 2017, when it was on the floor, I kept going to my Republican colleagues and go, this is going to explode the deficit. And you know that. And they would go, oh, no, no, it'll create more economic activity. And I'd say, like, uh, you know, your own Congressional Budget Office says no first of all, and you know that, and you guys don't care about deficits. You never did. You only care about it when Democrats are president, so you, so you can stop them from, you know, accomplishing things. And uh, that won me a lot of friends on that side. I mean, this idea that, that tax cuts pay for themselves, you know, that's been tested to destruction again and again and again. We tested it under Reagan. We tested it under W. The, we had the opposite to the claim that, that the Clinton tax hikes would actually increase the deficit. That didn't happen. He actually balanced the budget, the only time we've seen that for a while. Not that that's an important thing, but just, you know, that's the point. We tested it in Kansas, uh, which... Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, that was great. That did everything on, on, the, on the notion that tax cuts would, would do wonders for their state economy. They did nothing at all except create a budget crisis. Yeah, uh, uh, Sam Brownback just bankrupted the state. And the fact that in 2017, with a, you know, a whole generation of failure of that idea under our belts, uh, Republicans just blithely asserted the same thing all over again is quite amazing. But that's the point that, you know, zombies aren't killed by things that, that would kill something that was truly alive. Let's talk about uh, where we are now, what we've done so far in response uh, to this crisis and what we should do going forward uh, versus uh, what. Trump and McConnell say want to do? First of all, state of the economy. If you are interested in the course of a pandemic, listen to the epidemiologists. It's, it's a technical field. You have generations of hard thought evidence. Uh, they can be wrong sometimes, but you know some amateur coming at it, and that can include somebody who's an expert in something else, but you, you just don't want to try and second guess them. I don't want to second guess them. Uh, and the epidemiologists were terrified well in advance of the uh, actual mass deaths in the United States. Um, they're terrified uh, of the consequences of premature reopening. But the U.S. economy is in a the economic equivalent of a medically induced coma, where doctors you know deliberately shut down a bunch of brain functions in order to give a chance to heal from acute injury. And what we've done is we've uh, shut down a good part of the economy, shut down restaurants and hotels and, and travel and, uh, and a lot of retail and a bunch of other stuff, things that you can live without for a while and are high contact things that will spread the virus. And so this, although the economy has shrunk and a lot of people are not working, those are actually good things. Those are, those are desirable things. The problem is that they're also things that people live on. Uh, their people depend upon the, the wages, uh, the income. Uh, small businesses depend upon their business. I, I hate it when people keep on talking about stimulus. Uh, we're not trying to stimulate the economy right now. In fact, we want to keep a lid on it for a while longer. 
what we need to do is we need to make this tolerable. We need to make it possible for people to to put food on the table and pay their rent. Essentially provide life support for folks. That's right, folks. exactly. It's like, it's, like, it's like providing life for support for somebody in an induced coma. And the, um, it's disaster relief, not stimulus. Uh, this is like a, a you know, 100 Katrinas have hit the nation as a whole. And, and other countries do this, right? We're not doing an entirely terrible job at this. There, there's so much bad stuff and there, there's so much stuff that's mishandled that I think we're not giving enough credit to the pieces that are being done right, of which the most important is a big expansion of unemployment benefits. The CARES Act, by the way, I'd, I would love to reach a, a point where we stop giving cute names to, to legislation. But anyway, the CARES Act, from which was passed... At, at Somebody March, bent over backward to make that the CARE Act. Yes, I know. And, uh, uh, but in any case, the, the most important component of that is that it expanded the eligibility for unemployment benefits uh, and the duration of unemployment benefits and increased everybody. Everybody who's laid off because of COVID gets an extra 600 a week. For how long? This thing all expires on July 31st. Yeah. If we don't extend it, that's likely to be a moment of crisis. But right now, what's happening is last month, it looks like the unemployment benefits replaced about half of the wages that were lost because of the shutdown. And that was lower than it should have been because we're running this thing through state unemployment offices, which were hugely overstressed, weren't ready to handle this, especially in states that have deliberately made unemployment insurance hard to get. But that's been growing steadily. So we can actually see at, at this point, we're probably replacing 70, 80% of wages uh, lost because of the shutdown. That was included at the assistance of House Democrats. Republicans hated that piece. Of course. But that's the reason that we don't have really mass suffering, at least so far, is largely because of that piece. On the other hand, we're supposed to be helping small businesses, and that was disastrously designed and implemented. It's been a, uh, uh, screw up. Okay, we're going to take a uh, quick break right now. We'll be right back with Paul Krugman. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. 
Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let me ask you about state and local governments, because going forward, we're talking about uh, McConnell is telling the states to go bankrupt. Yes. Which which they can can they legally can a state? No, they can't. Okay, <laughs> I didn't think so. You know, people were written to me saying, "Oh, states have gone bankrupt. Mississippi went bankrupt in the 1830s or something." Um, that's been illegal since I think 1937. States cannot, in fact, declare bankruptcy. I think McConnell is, is if it hasn't hit him already, it will soon. Uh, it's not just you know, blue states with, with their generous uh, social programs. It's, uh, in some ways, actually, it's looking as if places like New, New York and New Jersey, which have, and California, which have income taxes, uh, are going to hold up better than states that rely entirely on sales tax, like, like Florida and Texas. So this is going to be a crisis all across the states. They're laying off people, right? Uh, public yeah, employees. Yeah, we've lost a million jobs in state and local government Mm -hmm. uh, just in the month of April. And and when we say jobs in state and local government, think school teachers, which is about half of them, uh, firefighters, police officers, you know, we're these are not we're not talking about bureaucrats doing nothing that you care about. We're talking about people who educate our kids, who put out fires and and who protect us. And it's shocking that we lost any jobs in that sector, though. That should be expanding to deal with the crisis. But it's going to get much, much worse if, if we don't get some aid out to the state and local governments. Obviously, we're paying the price. Everybody in this country is paying the price for the two months that went by while of Donald course. Trump wanted, I guess, wanted to keep the stock market up. Is that what he well, wanted? That's, was that that's the... what the reporting is, yeah, that he was, uh, he didn't want to, or Jared Kushner told him, and he agreed that we shouldn't order any extra medical supplies. We shouldn't uh, talk about any kind of contact limitations uh, because that would spook the stock market. So remember Reagan said the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Well, now the eight most terrifying words are, I'm Jared Kushner and I'm here to help. Yes, I can. Uh, <laughs> it, it is amazing. He's got the reverse Midas touch. Uh, everything he touches turns to words I can't use on, on air. Shit. Um, and Shit. Yeah, all right. Okay, yeah, and uh, and and people uh, don't know this. I know Paul, and he has a really bad potty mouth. Oh right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's that's not true. Not enough to be interesting, but anyway, the uh, but yeah, but this is a guy who who really has never done anything right, and but then I mean, we, you know, other countries are actually reopening because you know South Korea had its first case the same day that we did. But they responded quickly with a partial lockdown, a massive ramp up of testing capacity. And uh, the other day, South Korea had a, uh, there was one guy who was infected who went to nightclubs. And, and so they had a, a second outbreak of a couple of hundred people. They flooded the zone. They tested something like 10,000 people found a bunch of cases, isolated the people, and they brought it under control without having to... They had to shut the nightclubs for a while again. Probably a good idea. But they, they're not having to shut their economy. So we could be there. You know, We're a sophisticated, advanced country, lots of 
of capacity to do stuff. Um, but instead, we ignored it. Once there's a lot of people infected, then you need massive testing capacity to do that kind of thing. And we don't, we haven't gotten there. So, and we have no so, national plan. Uh, right. You've made the point that, you know, after Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt didn't ask the states to address that. They moved in immediately to establish national control over key strategic resources, because strategic production, because that's what you do when you have an emergency, uh, instead of a free-for-all in which states are competing with each other. But having a national plan would mean taking responsibility. And so that's that's <laughs> if there's one thing the guy in the White House doesn't do is, is uh, he himself says that I, I take no responsibility for anything. So we, we have not handled this at all with the seriousness and the constant desire to just sort of wish it away. Obviously, it, it means that lots more people have died and probably lots and lots and lots more people will die because of this. And it also means that the economy is going to, you know, even if, if there's an attempt to open, it's probably going to fail. We don't know this for sure, but the odds are that we'll see an uptick in infections and we'll be in economic limbo for a much longer time than we would have been if we'd taken this seriously from the beginning. And again, that's what epidemiologists say. That's right. Well, they don't, they don't talk about the economic consequences, but they're absolutely terrified of, of the results of premature opening. Obviously, you're right. I mean, and so many people have said this, we should be testing and contact tracing. That's in the House bill. We, we have to do that. But this president is, uh, he, he, I think you wrote somewhere that, that he just will not ever admit that he made a mistake. It's not that he just screwed up those first two months. He just screws up every day. Right. And he refuses to admit, um, even implicitly admit. I mean, a, a, an actual decent uh, leader would say, okay, I was wrong about something, but we're going to fix that. Trump, now, the truth is, he, he, previous Bush never did that either. Uh, but at least the Bush administration would slink away, you know, what they would abandon failed policies <laughs> eventually and, 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 and pretend they never happened. But Trump actually just doubled down on the mistakes. So had this, you know, disastrous, I don't know where this came from, this disastrous recommendation that everybody take hydrochloroquine, which doesn't help COVID and will kill you other ways. He just says, oh, well, I'm taking it now, which doesn't actually mean that he really is. It probably means yeah. he just says that, but, but the, he won't admit that he was wrong about something. I mean, it was, that was too much even for Fox News hosts. I like the one about injecting yourself with Lysol. Even that one, he didn't go like, okay, I had a brain freeze, and that was ridiculous. But no, he said I was being sarcastic, and it's on tape. He just never admits a mistake because of that he keeps making them. I want, to, I want you to explain something to uh, me and to folks, uh, which is the Fed buying assets, because we hear that all the time, and the Fed stepped up and bought unprecedented uh, amount of money in, right? Yeah. So uh, please explain for uh, for us what that means, the Fed buying assets. Literally what the Fed is doing is in fact buying them. It, it goes to a bank, private bank, and says, well, we want to buy uh, $1 billion of U.S. government treasuries, and we will pay for them by crediting your account at the Fed the bank has an account at the Fed with, with $1 billion. That, that account didn't come from any place. The Fed just 
waved its digital wand over it, and they, and there there it was. So so the purpose of this, if I'm right, is to provide liquidity. Is that right? Yeah, it is to to make sure that money is flowing, that people aren't all trying to hoard cash. One way to say, it, look, if everybody tries to hoard more cash and not spend the money on something, then the trouble is, you know, your your spending is my income, my spending is your income. So if everybody tries to hoard cash, uh, what we have is a, is a recession. And what the Fed is doing is going out there and buying stuff. And it's only allowed to buy assets. It can't just go out and buy groceries to keep the money flowing so that the economy doesn't crash. So let me let me give an example, because I want to try to wrap my head around this. Uh, let's say a corporation needs some money to keep going, right? Can the Fed essentially give them a loan? And maybe not directly, but through a bank or something like that. Is that what's happening? Yeah, roughly speaking. Um, it's uh, that's, a, that's good enough. It's good enough. I mean, uh, <laughs> put it that way. Yeah, put it this way. The, the Fed can't lend to a corporation, but it can lend to the corporate sector, basically, is the way to put it. So it can, it can put money in places that ends up being used to lend money to corporations. Is that called a credit market? If you, if you strip it down to its essence, yes. Right now, the Fed is lending money to corporations. It's not favoring any particular corporation. That would be a, a violation of, of the rules. But it's I, I see. It, but corporations can go and get a loan from the money uh, that the Fed put in these accounts of banks. Yes. Close okay. enough. Okay. Yeah. Uh, close uh, enough. Yeah. That's it, what it, I keep, thought keep, it was. Keeping the money flowing <laughs> by, by, by making sure that money doesn't pile up uselessly in banks, but instead gets lent out to businesses. Okay, and and can you lend also to like municipalities? Yes, and... they can, and that that's ah. uh, and that's one of the things that they are doing a little bit of now. Now, municipalities themselves have limits on, uh, you know, they can't borrow very much because of balanced budget rules. But they, there's a, enough uh, wiggle room in there that that's really important. And yes, the Fed is is out there buying some unis and uh, and keeping the money flowing to to cities. Great. How about for states and states? I, I want to tell you a story. I, I, I'll try to make this short. When we were having the debate on the ACA, part of what we were doing was making trims in Medicare Advantage, which didn't suffer from this at all, uh, and extending the life of Medicare. And I had a Republican senator come up to me and say, well, that's not real money. It's just treasuries. And I said, uh, treasuries are like real money. They're <laughs> right. I, I said, uh, let me ask you something. Do you have treasuries in your portfolio? And this is what he said. Well, your portfolio is probably bigger than mine. Okay. <laughs> well, nevertheless, um, uh, let me tell you, I, my kids went to college. I, I laddered these treasuries and that paid for their sure. college education. Do you have any? He goes, they're not money. I go, well, um, let me ask you this. What would you do with <laughs> the, you know, the extra funds that are coming in? Would you, would you get a warehouse and have freezers there and put steaks in there? 
<laughs> or what? Yeah. What are you talking about? And he goes, they're not money. I go, well, yeah, yeah they are. They're, in fact, the safest money there is. They're the safest thing. They're U.S. Treasury. They're not money. Okay, yeah, right. what would you put in there? And then this is what he finally said after I pressed him and pressed him. He said, CDs, yeah. Certif certificates of deposit. Now, I could say this guy's name, and I'm tempted, but I won't. But how friggin' stupid and embarrassing is that? Yeah, I know. And uh, <laughs> yeah, if you actually ask me, what is a, what is a CD? Uh, it's a claim on a bank. What does the bank own? Owns a lot of treasuries. <laughs> so, I will name a name. There, there have been a lot of stupid things said in, <laughs> in this, you know, crisis. But I think the the stupidest thing, stupider than hydrochloroquine, was Lindsey Graham saying that because this virus is China's fault, maybe we should disqualify or or default on the treasuries that that China owns. Jesus. Which, yeah, I mean. Uh, Right now, U.S. government debt is the safest asset in the world. But if we start saying, well, except we don't repay the debt if we don't like you, uh, that's, that's a, a way to really destroy the world financial system and the U.S. economy. Lindsay's yeah. kind of gone yeah. off the tracks there. Not my, not my department. I really want to know what happened to him. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Um, they have something on him. And it's kind of an open secret in Washington. He's a compulsive shoplifter. And they have video of him lifting a gravy boat from Pottery Barn. Okay. All right. That's what it is. I'll, so, I'll let so that they, lie there. They got him. They got him. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's take a break right now. And uh, we'll be right back with Paul Krugman. Uh, his latest book is Arguing with Zombies. Arguing with zombies. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Uh, let's talk about health care. Let's talk about health care. Okay, the president, of course, uh, they're going to the Supreme Court to try to yeah. uh, declare the ACA unconstitutional. People are who are losing their jobs are losing their coverage. Or they have to go into Cobra, which is then they have to pay for the, the full boat on Cobra. They can go into the ACA, right? I I was wondering, what do you think of saying they can directly be enrolled immediately in Medicaid? Well, I would be great. Now, the Medicaid is means tested. Even the expanded Medicaid in states that that have expanded it, it's. It, 
you have to have lost enough income. But the fact of the matter is a lot of people are going to be eligible for Medicaid. The estimates I've seen, and these are all, you know, we don't, we're, everything is happening so fast that everything is provisional, but the estimates are so, that something like 27 million people uh, are going to lose their employer-based health coverage. Uh, of those, about 21 million will be eligible either for Medicaid, and I think the majority of those are, are Medicaid, especially, uh, of course, in states that expanded Medicaid under the ACA. Um, and then the rest will be eligible for subsidized insurance policies under the, under the ACA. You, you know who touted that the other day? I don't know if you, you heard this. It was um, Cornyn. Yes, Cornyn, who's trying to destroy the ACA, is saying, don't worry, the ACA will take care of you. It's amazing. He did an advertisement for the ACA. Well, the good news is that if, uh, if you lose your employer-provided coverage, which covers about 180 million Americans, then you, that is a significant life event, which makes, it, makes you then eligible to sign up for the Affordable Care Act. And as you know, it has a sliding scale of subsidies up to 400% of poverty. So that's, that's an option for poor people. What a putz. Yeah. The people who are destroying, want to destroy it, are, are meanwhile relying upon it as to, to, uh, to sort of catch the, uh, the falling uh, workers. And, you know, if, if we had a better, if we had, you know, if we had single pair, which I would support if I thought it was politically possible. I, I've read your, your writings on this. You would support single payer, but keep private insurance, right? If I could just wave away the politics entirely, I would just go single payer without a private option. Say that basic health, do what the Canadians do. Basic, basic health insurance comes from the government. You can buy poor stuff that isn't covered by the government insurance. You can buy a, a additional insurance for it. So for, for cosmetic surgery or whatever. 70% of Canadians get some supplemental private insurance. That's right. And uh, that's certainly fine. And in fact, something where you have, uh, basically, you can buy into a heavily subsidized government insurance program, but you still, if you prefer, can run it through a private insurer. That's, that's an, a compromise that preserves most of the advantages. That's something that looks like it might be politically doable in the not well, yeah. future. And the politics on this is really important because in 2018, the reason we flipped 40 seats is because when they were going to repeal and replace the ACA, yeah. what they came up with was horrible. And people, it, first of all, people understood what was in the ACA finally. Yeah. And they saw that these didn't necessarily protect people with pre-existing conditions. We flipped 40 seats, which when you flip seats, it means those were Republican seats. I, I was very worried that we would go into the general election. And, you know, I love Bernie, but we would be the only country in the world that has universal health care. All the developed countries have it. They all have private insurance. Yeah. Yeah. Sanders' proposal was something that would have been way to the left of Canada and uh, would have been to the left of, of France, really. And that didn't seem realistic. Well, I think it would have, we would have lost the House because in those 40 districts, those are flipped. Those were flipped. So those yeah. were at best purple, all these people who get their insurance through their employer and like it, politically, I think it would have been very, very dangerous.
even if you think that government coverage would be better than the private coverage, convincing people of that, saying, okay, I'm going to upend everything. I'm going to take this insurance that you have that you think is pretty good and replace it with something totally different. And trust me, it'll be better. That's, that's just too heavy a lift. Now, in fact, what, I don't even think we're going to get the Medicare with, you know, with the choice of private insurance. Uh, not yet. I think, I think what we're likely to get, if all goes well under a Biden administration, is ACA 2.0, with no limit on how high your income is to get the subsidies, with the subsidies more generous, with Medicaid eligibility expanded, which will get us pretty close to universal coverage. Well, you know, um, Medicaid expansion, unbelievably popular. Yes, exactly. Uh, in 2017, when they were proposing their health care plan to replace yeah. the ACA, one of the things they would have eliminated is Medicaid expansion. And I went around the uh, red areas of uh, Minnesota, and they, they were crazed. I had town hall meetings in hospitals, and people were very scared because Medicaid uh, expansion had done tremendous amount for rural hospitals. And very often now, the hospitals were the largest employer in the county. And if you look at the three last states to approve Medicaid expansion by referendum, it's Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah. Yep. So this is extremely popular, Medicaid expansion. You know, we, we tend on healthcare to do hodgepodge solutions, Rube Goldberg devices. And if you're a, a true blue, true blue, in fact, uh, progressive, you kind of want a clean, comprehensive system. But unfortunately, there's a lot of history in there. And so you, you sort of start from where you are and you, you improve on it. I, I have quite high hopes that we'll, we'll do that and we'll, we'll get another 15 million people insured and will improve the quality of the insurance for everybody else. And that's huge progress. I mean, the ACA has, has saved lots of lives and saved lots of people. You know, I obviously I'm high socioeconomic status and most of the people I know are, are but I, even so I know people who would not have been insured without the ACA um, and then got breast cancer or something. And it, it has been literally a lifesaver for them. Absolutely. And uh, just one last thing on this is that Every other country has, the developed country has universal health care, and, and they do it for about half or 60% of the cost that we do it, and they have just as good outcomes, but they all, every one of them, has private insurance. Yeah. We also have to get pharmaceutical prices yes. under control. The rest of the world pays about 30% of what we do. Yeah. And a lot of other things too, but pharmaceuticals, medical equipment, the provider side, there's too much profiteering going on, but all that, but you know, work on that. But the most important thing, especially right now, think about what would, what the current situation would be like without the ACA. Okay. So tell me what we should do now and in the future. Tell us, oh, wise one, let's say we win. <laughs> Let's say we win. So, uh, agenda items. I mean, you know, first of all, get this this pandemic under control because I very much doubt yeah, that. I'm, I'm going to write that down. Hang on, otherwise I'll forget yeah. it. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, um, get the, the end of uh, the pandemic. So that's going to be. I, I very much doubt that we'll actually have 
given current management that things will in fact be under control by, by late January. Um, two things that a, uh, a Biden administration with a Democratic House and Senate, nothing happens unless you have all of that. So things they should be doing. Um, we want to enhance the, the safety net. Investing in children, I would hope, would be a big theme here, uh, that it's, it doesn't cost a lot of money. Children are cheap and ha- pays huge dividends uh, socially and in the long term. Infrastructure. Remember uh, Trump's, yeah, the trillion-dollar infrastructure pack. Did you hear him the other day? I, it was like a couple weeks ago where he said there was no infrastructure in the stimulus package. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, I, I remember there were... There are lots of signs uh, saying this this paid for by the ARRA. Yeah, which and it should have said paid for by the stimulus package because yeah. no one knew what the ARRA was. Yeah, that's and... that's we were bad at messaging in some ways. Yeah, definitely. Remember, you know, you know the phone number for the exchanges for the federal exchange was not like one eight hundred get care. <laughs> yeah, it was like random. It was like a random number. If you sell mattresses, you know not to do that. Uh, terrible messaging, but the infrastructure spending in the stimulus was only a few hundred billion, and um, we need vastly more than that. And that's because Susan Collins held out for more tax cuts and, and less uh, infrastructure. I, I don't understand even now why. We couldn't have just used reconciliation. I mean, if, the, if Republicans can pass a two trillion dollar tax cut with, with only fifty three senators, uh, why couldn't you have passed a stimulus bill in the middle of the Great Recession with without sixty senators? It's never been explained to me why that was unthinkable then, when Republicans had no no hesitation at all about doing that once once they had a president. White House uh, officials under Obama were too cautious. And they, they, among other things, they misdiagnosed. They kept on saying it has to be timely. It has to come in fast. Uh, it, was, it was fairly obvious even then that, that we were likely to actually have a sustained period of, of depressed economic conditions. And now we're in a situation where even if we manage to get back to something like full employment, we desperately need infrastructure. The federal government can borrow at ridiculously low interest rates. So we should just have a big infrastructure push and and deficit finance it. Um, so that trillion isn't remotely enough. Actually, we should be at least uh, two trillion, maybe more. So that should be a, a major uh, push point. And wrap up stuff together. The uh, Green New Deal. I'm a I'm a Green New Deal enthusiast. And people ask, well, what does the Green New Deal mean? And I said, I'm not sure. And that's good. <laughs> You know, we want it to be a, a grab bag of things that are good for the environment, but also good for employment and good for infrastructure and wrap it all up, do things related and not. Uh, so basically, a spend on, on making America a better place would be the, the quick summary of what Biden should do if, if, if he gets the chance. Yeah. On climate, of course, um, there was a time when there were some Republicans yeah. who... Uh, acknowledged that we had a problem there but that ended when the Koch brothers started pouring yeah uh, their money in and you got the word that you're going to be primaried if yeah. you believed in climate change yeah climate change was uh, was a dress rehearsal for for the pandemic i mean the denial experts are the enemy and it's all a, a vast conspiracy and so yeah we're gonna have to save 
civilization in the teeth of constant political oppositions. You know, Obama was making some headway despite that, even with the, with the Republican Congress through executive orders. So I, I would hope that if we actually have a Democratic Congress, that a, a Biden administration could do quite a lot. I mean, that's they better because otherwise, without U.S. leadership, it doesn't happen globally. And without without action, um, this is you know we really are talking about existential civilization uh, threatening uh, risks here. Well, speaking of action and reconciliation, I think. They have to get rid of the filibuster. We are so tribal now. You know, we're not going to have 60, that's for sure. A lot of people understand that if we're going to actually do things, that's yeah. what we're going to have to do. Yeah, I mean, and, and of course, and some stuff, again, it turns out that fiscal measures that don't increase the deficit outside a 10-year window, you can already bypass the filibuster. But if it turns out you can't do everything you need to do, then there are things that are a lot more important than um, legislative rules that are, are, are not even in the Constitution. They're just tradition. Well, it was a tradition in order to get bipartisan agreement on stuff. Yeah. And that doesn't exist anymore because these zombies yeah. are zombies. Yeah. It's a, the zombie ideas have completely taken over one wing. I mean, if I want to get really pessimistic, uh, I, I just say you know, with half the U.S. political system controlled by... Uh, a fundamentally anti-democratic, anti-rationality movement. You know, it's a lot better if it's slightly less than half the political system controlled by that, because uh, that means you can actually do something. But it's still very, very hard to do anything. And we, we face gigantic problems. Uh, climate change, top of the list, but you have to do lots of other stuff in order to have the political capital to deal with that. So th this is not the Republican Party of Everett Dirksen, right, where you could you could expect kind of some kind of reasonable compromise. You know, you write in Arguing with Zombies about a number of subjects. You know, income and wealth inequality. We're back in, you know, the 1880s. In some ways, uh, Thomas Piketty, uh, he talks about the Belle Epoque and in uh, pre-World War I France, which where a lot of it was inherited wealth. It was sort of dynastic, and we're headed into that kind of society um, and immense inequality. You can see, I mean, the, the Times had a fantastic analysis. During the, the pandemic, uh, about 5% of New York City's population decamped. By the way, including yeah. me, uh, I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm actually out in, in, in Princeton at the moment. And, and I'm very aware of the privilege involved in being able to do that. And of course, where do people decamp from? They decamp from the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side. And so literally, inequality is, is a question of life and death. And um, uh, it's insane. The thing is, we, we know a lot about how to do it. I always use the, you know, the example of Denmark, uh, which is uh, a little more unequal than it was 20 years ago. But not remotely like America. And how do they do it? And the answer is both ends. They, they have much more equal uh, wages, much more equal compensation um, up front. And that has to do with, a lot with the fact that 60% of Danish workers are, are union members. They've created an environment which is friendly towards labor organizing. Then, then they have a much more extensive uh, uh, welfare state. They, their taxes are not all that much more progressive than ours 
but they they're higher and they pay for you know child care health care um, income support for the poor and the point is that Everything that we worry about, people talk about, well, you know, what about the robots? What about globalization? The Danes face the same technology, the same global marketplace that we do, and yet they manage to have a, a decent middle-class society, and we don't. And they've opened, haven't they? They got a handle on this uh, and have opened more earlier and yeah, more widely were, than we have. They were more restrictive uh, you know, Sweden didn't never really did impose the restrictions, but Sweden Sweden has a much higher death rate than its neighbors. But Denmark closed down for a bit. It still has many restrictions in place, but they've opened more than we have, and of course they haven't suffered anything like the mass unemployment we have because they subsidize uh, employers to keep people on payroll. There's something to be said for enhanced unemployment benefits, also, because it's not clear that all of the, that every employer is going to go back to where it was before. I don't know. I gather that some people are still trying to book cruise ship for 2021, which I find hard to un- understand. But, but anyway, well, you know, I'm, it's I'm a lot of fun different. on the cruise. The food is great. You can eat as much as you want. They have entertainment. Yeah, but it's still. You go um, to different ports. You go. No, I understand the appeal of it, or I, <laughs> I understand that it does appeal to some people, not my kind of thing, but no, but still, the, the point, is, anyway, that's good, the diversion. I'll the bet you that, you could get paid for speaking on, on a cruise. That has, actually, <laughs> I only got an offer for, to do that once, uh, and it... And you turned it down, and you turned it down. I turned it, I couldn't do it, but the, uh, <laughs> there, there is actually a, a, a cruise uh, that is specifically devoted to denouncing me every year. It's a libertarian cruise. <laughs> Wait, is it advertised that way, yeah, or is I, it just a libertarian cruise? It's the Contra Krugman cruise. Seriously, wow. look it up. Uh, so that is what an honor. Yeah, it is. That's a huge. Uh, it's incredibly flattering. <laughs> That's great. But yes, the point is, is that it's like a lot of stuff. We we make universal health care seem incredibly hard to do, but in fact, everybody else manages to do it. We make tackling inequality seem incredibly hard to do, but in terms of the economics, we pretty much do know how to do it because other countries have done it, and we ourselves did it. America in uh, 1929 was a very unequal place. America in 1950 was a middle-class society, and that didn't happen by accident. That happened because FDR and uh, progressives generally uh, made it happen. So um, this is it's, it's all about the politics. You know, Paul Wellstone used to say, we all do better when we all do better. And, you know, if a bridge collapses, a Mercedes falls as fast as a Hyundai. And uh, we need infrastructure. Income inequality, wealth inequality is is toxic. It, it, it really... Is hurting our society. I, I asked some uh, folks online to send in some questions for you, and I got a couple, okay? Kenneth Folk asked me to ask about universal basic income. Okay. Now, that's a genuine debate. It's not a zombie thing. It's uh, Yeah, that's a um, legitimate. <laughs> it's a legitimate, uh, and, and it's an interesting one. And um, the way I look at it is that Believe it or not, the pandemic is, is showing us the problems with that idea. UBI would mean that everybody gets a check, sort of unconditionally from the government every month, which sounds great, but 
what's happening right now is that about one in five U.S. workers has lost her or his income. But we have make, we're making up most of that through expanded unemployment benefits. But that's costing, it's probably going to cost $80 billion this month. If you were to try and supply people with that much income, everybody, not just the people who lost their jobs because of COVID, um, it would cost something like $5 trillion over the course of a year. And that's not going to happen. That's a quarter of GDP. And anything that's even remotely conceivable would be way inadequate. It wouldn't, co wouldn't come close to replacing the income that people are losing. So, the, so UBI is not actually the solution to something like this. We need something that's much more targeted, like unemployment benefits. And so I think that what, what we're getting here is we're getting a demonstration that a strong safety net is essential, but we're not, uh, you can't provide a sufficiently strong safety net if you make it unconditional. Okay, well, you answered Kenneth's question. Here's another one, okay? Uh, considering current course of action, where is our economy going to be uh, comparing to the world economy? Is there a chance of partial global recovery? Oh, yeah. I mean, partial, easy. Even the United States will probably have partial recovery, although we may backslide once the second wave of, of infection hits. It's all about the epidemiology. You know, if we could magically make the virus disappear, I think the U.S. economy could rebound really fast. This is not like the last crisis where we had this overhang of bad debt and, and uh, overbuilt housing and all of that that held us back. But the trouble is that we are nowhere close to being able to resume normal life uh, without creating a, an explosion of, of COVID-19 cases. So but but Trump about... is determined to do that, try to do that. And uh, to me, uh, I think you wrote in some column, he just won't admit any mistakes, so he keeps making the same ones. Yeah, that's right. So it's always the same. And uh, so, yeah, we're, he's now behaving exactly the same way he did in, in those crucial you know, two months before he was willing to admit that we actually had a problem. And the result will be the same, that we'll probably be forced into a second lockdown. Um, at, you know, we don't know that for sure, but uh, the epidemiologists say they don't know for sure, but they think it's highly likely as we relax too soon now. Earlier in this conversation, we talked about how these unemployment benefits, the, which are doing enormous good right now, uh, will ex expire on July mm -hmm. 31st. And the second lockdown, if it becomes necessary, is going to happen after that. And, you know, Lindsey Graham has already said, extend, we'll extend those unemployment benefits over my dead body. Shoplifting. Actually, over other people's dead bodies. So that's a great concern I have. Is there a chance of partial global recovery? You said yes. Yes, yes, yes. No, clearly. I mean, China is, is having some recovery now. And that's, you know, they're, depending on how you measure it, they're either second to us or bigger than us as an economy. A fair bit of Europe is starting a limited recovery. Partial global re recovery is not a hard thing to envision. The, the idea that, yeah, we might have the maybe you know, starting in the summer, uh, we start to see the world economy growing and even the U.S. economy growing again. That doesn't mean we won't still have mass unemployment uh, a year from now. The, uh, so it, it, it if, if the question is, can we have partial recovery? Yes. Can we have full recovery? It's hard to see that how that happens for a long time. Well, that's that's too bad. Uh, Paul, thanks for joining us. You know, uh, you're a hero of mine. 
when I um, wrote the book, Lies and Lying Liars Who Tell No yeah. Fair and Balanced Look at the Right, I did that. I was uh, a fellow at the Shorenstein Center of the Kennedy School at Harvard, and I put together this these students to help me <laughs> research the book yeah. as, as a study group. I put out a thing, and I got all these applications for it. And uh, so I had Ben Wickler, who is now chairman of the Democratic Party in Wisconsin, an important job. Yeah. Uh, ben Wickler, I interviewed him, and the first thing he said, well, I write for The Onion, because he's from Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. So I write for The Onion, and I'm a big, big fan of Paul Krugman. All right. And I went, okay, you're in. Okay, that's that's uh, that's good. Um, boy, uh, you know, when I took this job writing for the Times, I had no idea. I actually thought that I'd be uh, spending my time discussing serious arguments about policy. Uh, and instead, I'm busy talking about lies and the lying liars all the time. And now they're all zombies. Paul, thank you for joining us. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.